Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Vipen, who, while striving to maintain a healthy lifestyle alongside a demanding career role, suffered the first of his two heart attacks at the age of 45, the last thing he ever imagined he'd have to deal with. You always think you're sort of immune to certain things like, you know, if someone, when I, when I used to hear things like on the telly about people dying of certain illnesses or getting a heart attack, I just used to ignore that because I thought, well, something happened to me, is it? From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Rob Underwood. On the Ticker Tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. In this episode, Vipan talks about the significant lifestyle changes he's since made and how the impact of what happened affected him both physically and mentally. His key message, though, is not to let one event define the rest of your life, but to be resilient, accept what's happened, and continue to live life with confidence and hope. Vipan, thanks for sharing your story, one I sense you're very eager to tell. Hi, Rob. Yes, I am eager to uh, share my story just because I feel I've been through uh, quite an unusual time in the last decade or so. So uh, I just feel I've got some lessons that I feel could be of value to other people going through something similar. Such a challenging journey for you health-wise over the past 12 or so years. Tell me first about your typical lifestyle leading up to 2010. Okay, I... It was quite an uneventful lifestyle, but it was an active lifestyle. So I, I was always quite a f- guy into fitness, and I always that was always a key part of my life, Rob. So I've always been training in the gym ever since I was eighteen, actually. So going to the gym three times a week was was my mantra, and I I was always really into sport. Um, I never really drank a lot. I wasn't a big drinker. I never smoked and never did anything naughty in terms of drugs so it was quite a healthy lifestyle and I loved eating and I had quite a healthy habit of eating well although with occasional laps obviously but yeah it was it was nothing unusual perhaps fitter than the average guy for sure and and how did that make you feel that you you felt you were fit as you put it fitter than the average guy yeah the the, the issue with that is Rob that you always think um, you're sort of immune to certain things like, you know, if someone, when I, when I used to hear things like on the telly about people dying of certain illnesses or getting a heart attack, I just used to ignore that because I thought, well, something happened to me, is it? It was just totally irrelevant because when you, you're led to believe that if you lead a certain type of lifestyle and they encourage you to train or to be fit and exercise, and that's going to give you immunity to things like heart attacks. Take me back to events in January 2010, Vipan. Okay, so it was a cold, I remember it still, um, it's a cold January day, uh, trying to get back into fitness after Christmas excesses. So I'd just come back from the doing a bit of exercise and I, it was on a Saturday morning and um, we always have a routine at home um, have breakfast with the kids uh, who were very young at that age at that time they were only about five or six um, but this time I got back home um, I remember feeling really unwell and they're all in the kitchen and I just went into the living room I thought I've got to lie down here I'm not feeling great and my wife comes into the living room sees me and um, takes one look at me and says oh my god what's the matter with you and I said nothing much I just just 
feel a bit unwell i'm a bit tired perhaps i've overdone it after christmas but he said there's something's not right i'm going to phone the hospital or phone 999 and, and i remember having a massive argument with her um and i just remember taking the phone off her saying don't waste their time you're just wasting their time leave it alone i'll be fine mm. so we had a bit of a tussle as usual she won and grabbed the phone back off me and phone 999 and um luckily i had they prescribed said I should take some tablets so I took a massive dose of aspirin which we seem to have at home until the ambulance came and then they rushed me into they did some preliminary tests but luckily they came within 10 minutes that time and um, they whisked me into hospital um, on a Saturday morning and that started the, uh, quite an eventful journey actually that time and subsequent. So we talked about how fit you considered you were. Uh, I'm assuming there weren't any warnings beforehand on reflection. Well, to be honest with you, looking back on it, Rob, the there were warnings actually because I at work um, they did they called in. Uh, I was working for a big management consultancy, and and one day they said, if you're in the office, we're doing some free blood pressure checks. And this was about three months before my heart attack. Mm. And I went in um, only because all my friends, colleagues were having theirs checked. And then suddenly when I had mine checked, it came out ridiculously high. And then that meant I was advised to go and see a doctor and who then prescribed blood pressure tablets. So that was an earliest indication I had. But no other, no other warnings, no, other than that. So you arrived at hospital. What happened next? So I had this period of really a lot of uncertainty over the weekend because no one could really examine me up until until Monday. So it was a very, very scary and worrying time because I was not sure what was going on because they didn't really think I had a heart attack. But um, the blood, the tests that I, they carried out were inconclusive. So I had to wait. So when did you actually find out what the diagnosis was? Well, that's a bit of an unusual time um, when I found out. And I think the nurses got a bit fed up of me because I was being a really bad patient. So um, they wanted me to go to the bathroom with assistance and I refused their assistance. So they got a bit frustrated with me and basically said to me, you have to sign a form because you've had a heart attack. I said, what do you mean I had to sign a form? They said, we've had the test back. So at three o'clock in the morning on the Saturday or Sunday morning, I was told you've had, a, you've, had a, you've had a heart attack. So you need to be really careful. What do you remember feeling when those results came through? Really, I can remember to this day, I was so upset and so scared um, and wondering about my future, my family's future. Um, everything that I could possibly, the worst case scenarios, what was going to happen if I didn't make it, all the worst case scenarios, Rob, that you could imagine that went, the rest of that came, that went and stayed in my mind up until the morning. So Monday morning comes and I get seen by a consultant who says, we're going to have to take you in for surgery. So when we get into surgery, uh, I'm still awake. They did a local um, and they did this great thing where you can see yourself. They, you can see your, your heart being worked on as they as they do surgery to you. Um, and he, he basically said to me that he didn't believe I had a heart attack. Um, 
he thinks 99% certain and confident that I wasn't um, going to need any surgery. And it was just a mis one of those anomaly readings. Anyway, so he lets his registrar do the initial work while um, the consultant does his paperwork. Um, but within about a minute, he, he comes back on to talk to me and says, I'm really, really sorry. He goes, you are that one in 100. He goes, I can see um, I've got some really bad news for you. He goes, not only have you had a heart attack, but you've, I can see from the state of your heart, you've had previous heart attacks and um, there's been damage and we're going to have to put some stents in you to fix the the blockages. Wow, that was a lot to take in. Um, yes. What's going through your mind at that point? OMG. A lot was <laughs> the one that I can repeat on air were the OMG. I am a, this is not the sort of thing I was expecting. I, it's just hard to take in and absorb when someone just throws that at you. You just and you're just lying there. And so you I just you just have to just go with it, hope for hope for the best, basically, at that time. You think everything else you have to try and come to terms with later but at that time it was oh my god what is going on here i can't believe this um so it was just a massive shock it's difficult to take in frankly you can't mm. absorb it actually that's the, when someone throws that at you what what can you actually do or say not a lot um that is not a time for reflection when you're lying in surgery so um you just hope that they were able to fix me um at that time and which, which they did do and credit to them but the Obviously, I spent a long time in surgery, and, and when I came out of surgery, wheeled back into the ward, my wife was there with my kids. I imagine the impact on them at this point must have been tremendous. Yeah, I have to say to you, Robin, this is one of the lessons that it's not just what's happened to me that really you go that goes through the ringer. It's also your whole family goes through the ringer and the effects, the ripple effects that that carries on for years. So especially when you have young children as well, you know, the impact to them was just ginormous uh, as well as to my wife. And, you know, it, yeah, it has a huge impact psychologically. How was your recovery from there? Well, you know, they give you at that time when back in 2010, they give you uh, the, the physical exercises. So there's a whole training plan to get back on your feet and how to start exercising. That was do you know, Rob, that was quite easy um, because, I, as I said, I have been quite fit. So I didn't find that difficult at all. But I think the problem is it's not the physical issues, really, although, you know, they were pretty bizarre because I couldn't even climb a set of stairs. So it had to be done bit by bit. Um, but it's the mental focus and the mental problems that hit you afterwards that that you are not prepared for um, and then, and there's no help at that time. And that's what really affected me. How long was it, Vipan, before you were able to get back to work? Well, I thought at that time, I, I've got to put this, I, I was in denial phase. So there's various stages. Uh, you, it's a bit like morning. You, you, you deny that there's anything wrong with you and you think, oh, I can get back to this. I'm, you know, this is just a blip. And I wanted to get back to ASAP and I pushed hard to do that. So within six months, I was back at work. As a charity, the British Heart Foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research. Thank you to those who already give. It's truly appreciated. If you too would like to donate, you can do so by simply going to bhf.org.uk slash donate. 
And now back to the conversation. Vipan, so now you're back at work. How was that for you, not only physically, but from a mental perspective too? Well, at that time, Rob, I still hadn't come to terms or understood that it had affected me mentally. All I could think of is I want life to go back to normal. And normal for me, and up until then, was working solidly. So I went back to work. But I soon discovered this is the major issue that work was not the same as before. People started looking at me very, very differently. And basically, it really affected my confidence because they thought I was, uh, can I say damaged, because I'm not capable of doing what I was doing before because of what had happened to me. Mm. And and the way they treated me was such a, it just really affected me, that sort of lack of confidence. really really affected me mentally actually that made it um, I'd say a million times worse and eventually I had a second heart attack within a year nine months after coming back to work when I did have a chat with my cardiologist he said that although there's not a hundred percent proof that stress was the definitive cause it was likely to be a significant contributory factor to my second event talk to me about events surrounding that second heart attack that was uh, on a Sunday. I don't know why I have to wait till the weekends, but uh, this was now. This is on a Sunday afternoon. Um, I remember I was in a gym. I'd just finished my session at a, at a well-known gym. I um, went back into the changing rooms, and I remember feeling really. Where's the first heart attack? I didn't. The, the I did. I didn't know I was having a heart attack. This time, the sudden onset of pain, Rob, was so intense. I immediately knew I was having a, a, a heart attack because I could not breathe. Uh, and every time I tried to breathe, the pain was enormous. But I was all alone in the living, in the changing rooms at this big club. Um, and I, need, I needed to get out of those changing rooms because there was no one there. Um, and I thought, so my, I, tr- I basically left the changing rooms because if I just stayed there, I knew I'd probably... You know, I wouldn't make it afterwards. So I, I, I ventured. I staggered into reception somehow. It was about sixty meters away, um, and told reception I was having a heart attack, and they needed to call an ambulance. Um, but I had to wait forty-five minutes for the ambulance to arrive. Rob, it was just so unbelievably painful. Um, yeah, I'll never forget that time because that was probably some of the most painful times I've ever had trying to breathe in or out <clears throat> and waiting and hearing what they were saying as well. Where I talk, they were shouting and screaming about the ambulance and nothing was happening. It just made my pain immense. Mm. So tell me about the treatment this time that you received. Well, I after the stent. I went back in, so they took me to, to Harefield, which is a brilliant hospital, as they all, the first one was at, at Wickham. But uh, I got stented again. Um, and, I, and I guess what happened, the, the guys, when I started to explain to the consultant, you know, what, you fixed me physically. But he did say, I fixed you physically, basically. He said, so I was having a reaction to the medication. He says, I can't do anything for you mentally. He goes, I can only, I'm only... I can only fix you physically. And that really hit home to me. That was, they didn't really have coping mechanisms for the, the, that psychological side. So I had to start all over again on the physical side. But the mental side, I realized this was going to take a lot longer than I initially thought. So at this point, 
you're presumably reaching out for support from anywhere, I suppose, yeah. to, to help you on your journey. I mean, who did you reach out to? Well, again, it's this, because I was in my early 40s, and when I, I, I realised when I was admitted each time that the wards were filled with gentlemen um, who were in their 70s plus. So when I reached out to the British Heart Foundation, there was no facilities or because I said I need some help and talk to people who've been in my position in, in early year, you know, in um, um, middle age or younger to middle age. I can call early 40s that. Um, but they didn't have any facilities or support groups at that stage. So I felt really lost, to be honest with you. I didn't have anyone to turn to. And it, and you do feel very alone in, when you hear that because what are you supposed to do and how are you supposed to get better? And that started a journey, actually, a dark journey at many times. And um, but I didn't realize as, uh, how dark it was until um, until many years later, actually, Rob. Mm. So at this point, where, where is work in your priorities? You, you, this is your second heart attack. You said when you returned after your first, you, you felt damaged, undervalued. Yeah. Where does work figure in your mind at this point? Well, it meant that I wasn't going to be able to do um, work. They wouldn't. Uh, well, they took a totally different attitude. Again, their understanding of illness um, was a was a very basic one, and I had a complete lack of support. Really, uh, they had no idea about the psychological area of support or how to give me any support. So, work was not supportive. I didn't even think about work for a little while because. Uh, um, but then, obviously, you, if you're attuned to work, you you want to do something, and this is where there are the psychological problems. And I I was I noticed a change in my personality. I was getting quite angry, frustrated. I went to see a doctor who basically gave me an analogy as that I had a certain type A personality, and I was in a cage. He, he likened my situation like a lion who's in a cage, and and therefore very frustrated and angry. Um, and so I had to find different ways so I started doing charity work Rob to find ways that work wouldn't let me go back to their employer my employer wouldn't let me go back and I was signed off medically for a while so I had to find other ways and I started diverting my energy towards helping other people and becoming trying to find a use for myself through through doing some charity work Rob so your work compass has changed direction yeah. and, and I think it's fair to say Vipan that you really embraced the work of the British Heart Foundation from that point greatly, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, it took a while, to be honest with you, because I was doing work for other charities and realising how wonderful it was to help other people. I got involved in Parkinson's, but then I got involved. I had an opportunity. I saw an advert to get involved in a, a major pro a competition that the BHF were running, British Heart Foundation were running. And that's where it really took off for me and in my involvement with the British Heart Foundation it was a program called the Big Beat Challenge. Yeah so tell me some more about your involvement in that. Okay I was um, fortunate enough to be to be accepted after being interviewed for it was a 30 million pound project the Big Beat Challenge to find a transformational solution to any disease related to heart disease and it was a worldwide competition and they picked a, a panel of patients from all over the world it was amazing so we had a 
there's nine or ten of us from places such as South Africa, America, Australia, and of course the UK. So I met all these wonderful people, all patients, um, heart patients, and we we they asked us our opinions on all these competition entries. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to work with the other couple of panels. I'd met some great scientists, and um, and so it was just an unbelievable way of working with a, a great organisation who shared a lot of my values. This is and and helped me rediscover my purpose, Rob. And I think that was a key aspect in helping me to in my recovery, actually, to rediscover my own purpose mm. after what had been quite a traumatic number of years. So, and working with such lovely lovely people tell me about your lifestyle now compared to events leading up to 2010 have you made any significant changes well it took a while for me to understand um, because I had this stubborn streak and and that led not only I tried to keep on training the way I had been before but um, that led to back problems and back surgery so I had to deal with that as well um, and then I got opioid addiction. So then it it dawned on me, Rob, that I had to make a significant change to how I approached my physical well-being. But then I obviously realized I'd, it took me such a long time to realize I was suffering from depression and I needed to find remedies and look at myself in a different way. So I started looking at my mental well-being and how to look at that better. So I started doing things to look after not only my physical well-being but my mental well-being so that was a major eureka moment things like yoga meditation mindfulness all those had a massive impact especially mindfulness um to help me think through what goes on in my head in a different way than it happened before 2010 you must have drawn on great support from your family as well to help you through this yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing I realised that I couldn't cope uh, and recover on my own. Um, and well, it's a man thing in a way because men tend to. This is the other thing I realised: men are very bad at sharing their feelings and emotions and vulnerabilities. But all that does is is you go into a cocoon and and you you implode and it delays your recovery. So once I learned belatedly rob that i needed the support and i needed to tell my family especially my wife how i was feeling it and and she was able to help me and then help me find other people who could help me but up until then yeah uh, it took a long time so i've been on a it's been a really dark journey at times rob but i couldn't have done this without the support of my family especially my wife as I mentioned, Vipan, at the beginning, it's been a really challenging journey for you, hasn't it? What about a message for others going through similar lifestyle changing times? What would you say to them? I would say, do not let what's happened to you, and we all go through these bad, dark times, don't let that one aspect define the rest of your life. Everyone goes through these dark times, but you can move on from them. And in my case, it took me several years, but you can move on and you can become a better person and a stronger person. And, and being resilient 
is just that. And I've discovered um, and learned the hard way what resilience really is. It is about accepting what goes, what is, what happens to you, but actually growing. And I feel as a person, I feel I'm a totally different person than I was before that. And I've learned a lot more about myself. And in fact, you can become a better person. But and, and life does go go on and you can still enjoy life. So I would that would be my key message to people is that you should have hope and confidence that you can move on from this. Well, Vipan, thank you for those words. And thanks again for sharing your story with us. You're welcome, Rob. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. If you have any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health, and you'd like to speak to a cardiac nurse on the BHF's Heart Helpline, just go to our website at bhf.org.uk slash hearthelpline, where you'll find all the contact options. You'll also find useful information on our vital research, both in the episode notes and on our website at bhf.org.uk. The ticker tapes are for the many people out there living with heart conditions. And it's for them, their friends and family that we produce the podcast. If you'd like to tell your own heart story or you have thoughts on this episode, do get in touch with us by emailing thetickertapes at bhf.org.uk.